So I invite you to turn with me now to Jeremiah chapter uh, 2, as we're looking at that today. And verse 13 says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now, the chapter we're looking at today, Jeremiah 2, in this message that we've called Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places, in, uh, in the sermon series in Jeremiah called Loving God, hear the prophet Jeremiah in a courageous, compassionate, and convicting prophecy raises the issues to the Israelites, and he's affectionately calling them their covenant name Israel. The issue Jeremiah raises is God enough in our lives. Is God enough for you? When everything is taken from us, when we're maligned, when we're belittled, when we're slandered and misunderstood, when life dishes out to us heartache and losses left and right, can we stand in front of all of that and recite along with Job what he said in Job 1.21, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gives, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Is God enough in your life in the losses that you face? And is God enough in your times of success? You know, I heard recently of one of the major energy companies in our region here that needed to have a portion of a project completed, and it involved some excavating and landscaping, etc., because the environmentalists were breathing down their neck, and inspectors were on their heels, and they didn't want bad publicity coming out of all of this, so they contacted every contractor in the area. And of course, contractors are swamped right now. They're, everybody's so busy. So they ended up going to the contractor that they wanted to do the work in the first place, and they told him, we will give you four times as much as you want to charge for this project because we need this project done. Can you get it done in the next month? Many contractors are making money hand over fist right now because they are swamped with work, and they're raising their prices even. You know, many, 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 many dollars per square foot, and uh, they're making all kinds of money. And is God enough in situations like that where everyone is having success like that? You know, I have a brother-in-law who's a very good salesman. He graduated from college uh, in the late 70s, came out uh, and, uh, and has done very well in sales his whole career. He's the son of a, a car sales dealer who uh, his family had two-generation car dealership. He didn't take that over because he didn't want to follow the family business. He wanted to launch out on his own. There's been times regionally where he's top two, three. He's finished very high in companies he's worked for, even nationally. He's won all kinds of bonuses and prizes. He's uh, gotten vacations paid for for uh, my sister and, and himself to travel to different parts of the country. He's done all of that. But he's also been in sales when we had, he started his career when there was the high interest rates and inflation back then. And uh, these, he's, he's sell, sold through recessions. He's had times where they can hardly put beans on the table. And uh, he's experienced both. And he tells me, Daryl, I've always found it the hardest in my life to stay close to God during the good times, during the successful times, than during the difficult times. Can we still praise God when everything is going wrong in our lives? And can we still praise God when everything is going right? 
Now, I'm going to make an assumption here this morning that many of us have probably not completely read through this incredible book of Jeremiah. So allow me to give you some background information. There are actually earlier prophets in Israel's history, and there are latter prophets in Israel's history. The earlier prophets are people like Moses, people like Samuel, and the latter prophets are the ones that we find in these last 17 books of the Old Testament. And of all the entire Old Testament, over 40% of it is prophetic books. And they are broken up into major prophets, which there are four of, which is we have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. The book of Lamentations is in there, but Jeremiah is the author of the book of Lamentations. So we have four major prophets, and then we have what are called the minor prophets. Not that they're lesser, but they were smaller roles, didn't necessarily speak to all of Israel, but spoke to portions of Israel or portions of Judah. But we have Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And a prophet was a spokesperson for God. And here, Jeremiah, as God's spokesperson, uh, invites those who are listeners then, and those like us today who are readers, to number one, remember how we came to God initially, when we came to him by faith, deciding to follow God wholeheartedly. He's inviting Judah, and he's inviting us to remember that first love. And then he gives the invitation to remember God's grace in our lives after we came to faith in him. All that God had done for Israel and all that God has done for us. And all of that is a gift. And each day is truly a gift. Now the final thing Jeremiah wants Judah and us to recall is that God is the only true God out there. All the other gods and all the other idols and all these things are truly vain. All the, everything out there that isn't God, the only living true God, it's all worthless. It's all vanity. So let's consider the first compassionate appeal that Jeremiah makes here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of the harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. God is seeking to win Israel back with this heartfelt appeal here. And one of the minor prophets, Hosea, tells uh, uh, the similar story. And Hosea is actually married to a woman named Gomor, and she was an unfaithful woman. Yet, he tries to win her back. And the book of Hosea is the portrait of our gracious, loving God who wants people back when they wander off, when people forsake him. He's still inviting them back like he's doing here in Jeremiah's time. And isn't it something that the sovereign Lord of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all that's out here in this world, in this universe, that this God does not want to leave us? This God does not want to forsake us? And God leads Jeremiah to tell Judah and to tell us in New Testament times, he's basically saying, do you remember those early days? Do you remember the honeymoon? Do you remember what that was like in the beginning when it was just us and, and, and God? And no one else? Well, in this devotion of a bride metaphor in the early years, it's a reminder to Israel of all that God had done for them. 
the destroying of Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea, the feeding of them in the wilderness with the manna and the the quail, the bringing water out of rocks, the guiding them at night by pillar of fire and by day with the cloud. And when we were so close in those early days, when anybody messed with you, I had your back. When they messed with you, they messed with me and, and had to go through me first, which didn't work out very well for them. The prophet Hosea says something very interesting too in chapter 11, verses one through four. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek. And I bent down to feed them. This is a loving God. Talk about God of grace and a God of love. This was God. And yet, what are the Israelites doing during this time? They're grumbling and complaining in those early days. In fact, chapter 16, verse 2 talking about when they were in the wilderness, the entire nation there, it says, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and against Aaron. And they weren't, it wasn't just them, it's because they're grumbling against God, because God has led them out. And look at what they said in chapter uh, 14 of Exodus, chapter, verses 11 and 12. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And then, of course, chapter 32 is the whole golden calf situation. And it says in verses 1 through 7, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down when he was up on the, on the mountain of God, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off your gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down, because your people who you, you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. God is telling us here in Jeremiah that he sees devotion in their youth. Israel is complaining about the lack of water, the lack of food, about dying and being bored in Moses' absence. They even built an idol, a golden calf. Yet God still loved them, was still trying to nurture them as young children. And he praises them for their devotion during their youth. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you know Jesus as a Savior and Lord of your life, when you first came to faith in Christ, I am certain that you struggled 
with some aspects of your life and with aspects of the Christian life. I sure did. And what's worse is I had to actually live down some of the sins of my youth to be able to come back here and pastor. See, I lived in this particular community for five years before I became a Christian, and then I lived here two and a half years after I had become a Christian. So those are the early infant years of your Christian faith. And then I went away for training college and a year and a half in the professional world and then going through seminary and nine years after they came back to be the lead pastor of Mission Company Church. Well, you know things I had to do? I had to meet with a high school and early college former girlfriend and ask her for forgiveness for not treating her the way I should have in a God-honoring way. And part of that relationship was when I was a non-believer. And then part of it was in my first two years of being a Christian. I also, when I first came here to church, had to go and apologize to one of the neighbors here who was a former teacher at Northwestern High School. And when I came, or, and, and the story is, you have to know ahead of time, uh, before I was a Christian, I hung out with the wrong crowd for a while. And I, as a sophomore at the end of my sophomore year, went to a drinking party at a cabin on Lake Nebagam, and one of my buddies, whose uh, family had a cabin over there, and of course, the sophomore class is all out there partying, and someone gets a wild hair that we should go and paint bomb a teacher's house. And, uh, you know, when you're young like that, and you're male, the frontal lobes aren't fused together. Okay? That doesn't happen for males till about 25 years of age. So you already got a propensity for being stupid. Okay? and doing stupid things, okay? because everything's not wired up like they should. And, and young ladies, you know, it's 21 to 22 before that completely happens. Now, if you put a bunch of these young guys together, then the stupidity factor goes, you know, raises up significantly. Then all you need to do is mix in some alcohol, and you've got a mess on your hands. So we go and paint bomb this teacher's house. Of course, a bunch of drunk kids. Only one balloon hits the house with paint in it. All right, and everybody thinks it's great, and we go off, and it's a fun time, and all that kind of stuff. Well, uh, lo and behold, they never took the paint off the front of their house. So for 12 years, I had to drive past that house. Anytime I would come home or see that, and even in my last two years of high school, I had to see that paint, and I justified it. Well, you know, who's to say it was my paint balloon that hit? You know, because the you know everybody missed. So so who's to say it was mine? And if I go say something or admit to it, then I'm taking responsibility for everybody else. Well, I come back here to pastor, to lead this church, and I'm not here a month or two. And it's my class reunion, my 10th class reunion. And what do people say? Everybody's saying, oh, I remember when you did that. Uh. And I felt so convicted. Uh, and you know, we didn't have any money. We hadn't been to the dentist in five years, going to school all those years and everything else. There's, what are you going to do? So we ended up, I ended up making an appointment with this family, went over there to ask their forgiveness, confess my sin to them, to offer to repaint their house, pay for all of that, I'll do it. Or if they wanted, their house recited. I was going to go take a loan out and get the house recited, but I had to make this right. And it was so precious because this family was like, oh, no, no. They, 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 and they probably knew because word in the community spreads on those kinds of things. They probably even knew who it was. And they were so gracious and they forgave me. And you know the amazing part of all that is that uh, within a month, that, that was scraped off and the house was repainted. And I never had to see my sin like that anymore. Well, God sees incredible faith in people who are stupid. That's the story here. Who are young and in their youth. And Jesus even said to his disciples in Luke chapter 22, verse 28, you are those who stood by me in my trials. That's before 
He went to the crucifixion or the cross. These are people who made plenty of mistakes. But he's acknowledging their faith. Now, the second thing Jeremiah does is ask Israel to remember how good God had been to them. In chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, it says, Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me? That they strayed so far from me. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives. I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priest did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. God's saying, what did I do? What what fault did any of your ancestors find in me? And think about that for a moment. Let that sink in. This is an amazing statement from the mouth of a sovereign God. Micah, another minor prophet, Uh, during this time, or one of the minor prophets, I can say, Jeremiah was a major prophet, but he raises the same issue during a similar era where he says in chapter 6, verse 3 of Micah, and this is God speaking, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. And you know, Moses gave the answer to Israel before he ever went, they ever went into the promised land. In Moses' final song in chapter 32, verse 4 of the book of Deuteronomy, he sung this. He is the rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just he is. God reminds Israel here in Jeremiah that they are in the very land. They are living in this fruitful, abundant place that he gifted to them. Now, yes, this is almost a thousand years after this uh, time, and obviously with uh, such a time lapse, it's easy to think how they could take the blessings of God for granted. But how many times do we do that with much less time intervals? Sometimes it's merely weeks, months, or even days that we take God's blessings for granted in our lives. Do you catch yourself doing that? Taking for granted God's blessing and blessings in your life. You know, things have gotten so bad for Judah during Jeremiah's time that the leaders, that's what verse 8 is telling us, the leaders had abandoned God. The priests, the Levites, the rulers, the prophets, all had turned their backs on God. And what did they do it for? For idols, which they're told become worthless. Now, I don't want to get chewed out by anybody here today after this sermon, and I don't want to break anyone's hearts But how many of you today are more excited to watch the big game today, the Battle of the Bays between Green Bay Packers and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, more excited about that than you are about being at worship together today, looking more forward and more excited for that game than about being here today with other believers? Rather, would you rather be in your recliner Enjoying that game, the game of the week, the NFL's telling us, or being here today to meet a potential ministry intern here at our church 
and to celebrate God and worship together. Now let me share with you some little insight information. Maybe many of you don't know this information. But actuaries, those are the number crunchers, the bean counters that tell insurance companies what they should charge and all those kinds of things. That's how they know what our rates should be and what risk factors we are. Well, there are actuaries that actually you know, calculate things for the National Football League. And so how much of a team's salary should the quarterback receive, because there's a salary cap, in order for the team to be able to win a Super Bowl? Do you know in the history of the NFL... When a quarterback receives more than 15% of the team's salary cap, teams do not win the Super Bowl. It's only happened one time ever, and that was two years ago when Tampa Bay won it, and their defense was a phenomenal defense. And they agreed to stay together, and they agreed to take less money, and their number one draft pick, they traded their quarterback to the New Orleans Saints, Jameson Winston, because he threw 30 interceptions. They thought they were a Super Bowl championship team that year, but their quarterback threw the ball away. So they went out and got Tom Brady, paid him over that 15% to get him. People took less money to go get Tom Brady, and they won the Super Bowl that year. It's the only time in the history of the NFL where that has ever happened. Well, when Bill Belichick, the coach of the New England Patriots, he understood this. If you want to understand the secret to the New England Patriots, he understood this. So every time Tom Brady's contract negotiations would come up, he would tell him, Tom, we can only pay you this much money. So you're not going to be the highest paid quarterback in the NFL. You're, you're going to have to take less money. But you can stay here, and we can win Super Bowls together. And I, we can go out and get the players you need to surround you so that we can win the Super Bowl, and win the Super Bowl multiple times. I've already proven I can win without you, but with you and all of us together and using this plan, we'll win Super Bowls, and, and that's true. Now, again, I don't want to break any Packer fans' hearts here today, okay? But Aaron Rodgers is the highest-paid quarterback in the NFL. Do you know how much of the Green Bay Packers' salary cap he eats up? 25% for one player. Statistically, it tells us they cannot win a Super Bowl. They would have to have superior coaching. They would have to have phenomenal play from Aaron Rodgers. And all of their other players would have to play above their heads to even have a chance. And you already know what happens when Aaron Rodgers gets hurt. They become a sub-500 football team. Folks, it's so easy to get wrapped up in the things of the world and neglect what is really important. It's so easy to forget all that God has done for us, to forget that these idols will never be there for us in the end. But God will. So who is it that should receive our devotion today? The game of the week? or gathering together for worship, to exalt and, and proclaim God's goodness and who God is. Verses 9 through 12 continue. Therefore I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coast of Cyprus and look, send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they're not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror. Go from east to west, and you will discover. Look all around you. 
all the idol worshipers do not leave their gods. And yet you are abandoning the one true God for what? When it's saying there about the heavens being appalled and, and shudder, that means that its hair is standing up on end. And verse 13 again, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Forsaken the springs of living water. Giving that up for, giving up that true life for what? Broken cisterns. Things that are going to prove to be empty in the end. Verse 14. Is Israel a servant, a slave by birth? Why then has he become plunder? You've left slavery behind. Why are you going back to that again? You know, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 7, it teaches us that when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, we are no longer slaves. We're not slaves to our appetites. We're not slaves to our sin or to our lust or to our egos or to the ways and the things of this world. We're children of God. Verse 19, your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord, uh, the Lord Almighty. Sin has enough consequences of its own. It ruins relationships. It destroys people's health. It causes sleep deprivation. It costs us many times financially. In terms of advancement, it often affects that. And it costs us one of our most precious resources often, time. And then when it says here about backsliding, backsliding here also rebukes you. And backsliding means literally turning away from God. Turning away from God, forsaking God, wandering from God, is going to rebuke us as well. You know, in the military, they use an acronym to summarize the risks that chaplains face. Uh, and if chaplains violate this acronym, uh, they will usually wash out of the, the military service and wash out of the ministry. And the acronym is SAM, sex, alcohol, and money. And any unbiblical pursuit of any of these matters will lead to failure in ministry and to washing out in the military. And this is even true in other professions. You know, the big news of this week was one of the brightest young coaches in the NBA. His first year of coaching this last year, he led the Boston Celtics to the NBA Finals. He defeated the defending champion Milwaukee Bucks in the early playoff rounds just to advance and to end up making it to the finals against Golden State where they could end up becoming second. He's considered one of the best, brightest minds. The Celtics and Celtics fans were so happy. They got this bright young coach. They're looking forward to championships in the future. But what was his error? He had an affair with one of the office personnel for the Boston Celtics. And as much as the Celtic ownership wanted to win a championship, and they thought they had the winning ticket with this young coach, they didn't want that kind of image of this powerful man having a relationship with one of their office personnel and violating his family and violating their team rules and all those kinds of things. And so he was terminated this week. Sam even took this man out. Sin has its consequences. Verse 22, although you wash yourself with soap and use an abundance of cleansing powder, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares uh, the sovereign Lord. You know, when many times when people 
uh, have been out doing bad things, like I described some things I did in my life when I was younger. You can take all the showers you want in the morning. You can't scrub away sin and stupidity from the night before. And sometimes people, when they sober up, say, what did I do? What was I involved in? But you know what? You know, even Christian people, they can gossip and slander and backbite and, and assassinate someone's character and say false things and all these kinds of things that can go on. And there's no amount of soap that can wash that away. And there's no amount of good works that can change any of that without following God's biblical instructions to make things right. Verses 23 through 25. How can you say I'm not defiled? I'm not, not run with the Baals. See how you behaved in the valley. Consider what you've done. You're a swift she-camel running here and there. You know, going out, running for water and looking for your satisfaction. A wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving, in her heat. Okay? This is, this is an animal looking to be bred. Who, who can restrain her? Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves at mating time or they will, because they will find her. And do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. But you've said, it's no use. I love foreign gods. I must go after them. So why is it that people have had this propensity to ditch the eternal God for trivial things and for idols? Why is that true? C.S. Lewis wrote, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child in a slum who wants to keep making mud pies because he can't even imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. End of quote. Every degree, every honor, every dollar made, every accomplishment, every job we've ever had, and even our friendships are all temporal. Nothing we possess here will ever come along with us in eternity. Yet billions of people worldwide spend their entire lives chasing after the temporal. So, the question of Jeremiah, what is it going to be? Is it going to be broken cisterns for you that leak and the, and the end, you end up with nothing? Or is it going to be the living water from God? In other words, is God enough for you? Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you uh, again for the opportunity to uh, talk about you, our loving God. And these words from the prophet have been pretty strong words. And yet, God, uh, you remember, even in those early days of Israel's history and in our early days of faith, when we were struggling to, to, to discover and to live into what it means to be a Christian, you had devotion to us. And you're reminding us, God, of that. And reminding us of all the grace you have poured into our lives. And specifically today, God, you are reminding us that you are the only true God. And if we invest ourselves in all these other things in this world, we're going to find in the end that it's all for nothing. We're going to come up empty. So God, I pray that we be people of devotion to you. And God, it doesn't matter where we are, who we're with, what we're with, what we're doing. We can always uh, look to you and focus on you and exalt you and worship you. And God, thank you for that reminder today and that message. And we pray that we can follow it and live to, into it in Jesus' name. Amen.